more of the good stuff. It's five past one on a Thursday afternoon. Welcome to Between Two Femmes with myself, Mabale Moloi. And Aspasia Karras. <laughs> and this afternoon we are joined in studio by clinical psychologist Leonard Carr. Indeed, we are. Good afternoon, Leonard. Thank you Good for afternoon. taking the time to see us today. Thank you for inviting me. Now, for those of you who are not in the know, and I don't know why this would be the case, Leonard, you've been closely following the Oscar Pistorius trial. In fact, you've um, shared your opinions, your professional opinions on the matter, and you've been, uh, you know, a lot, a part of a lot of debates around this this whole trial process that we've seen unfold right. over the last forty odd days or so. It's been going on for so long. But uh, Leonard, uh, let me just preface our uh, introduction to Leonard by this. Leonard is the voice of reason, I have to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always found his opinions profoundly uh, because, you know, our, our working relationship goes back quite a long way to um, when you started writing columns for The Times for us. And that's you, when you in fact turned me into a columnist. I did, I did, <laughs> so that he could comment on our like sort of crazy society. Yeah, from the point of view of the voice of reason. Although at the time he had to tear me down, I kept on saying, "Leonard, we should call your column Berg Daddy," because <laughs> he I is father of That sounds like a brothel owner. <laughs> that sounds very hip hop inspired. I love it. It it was, but he said no. He resisted. But Leonard, um. So he then became shrink wrap, and that's what he's been doing subsequently. Well, yes, wrapping this, it up for us. This this is true, and um, you know, I think w- when it comes to where you stand in terms of Oscar Pistorius, yes, and the kind of person that he is, I mean, you are a psychologist, so you can speak from a point of authority. Right. Just just remind us again what your stance on this whole case has been regarding Oscar. First of all, he's a complex personality, like all of us. Yeah. I really get irritated by people's sort of binary judgments. You know, he's either the devil incarnate or this poor little victim, you know, who can't do any wrong. He's a person who's had a very difficult history, amputations from infancy. You know, an infant who goes through amputations suffers a trauma at an age where it can't be explained to them. They can't be consoled and comforted. That trauma stays with a person. And this is a trauma that most of us, unless we've gone through that experience, could not even begin to understand, which is what a lot of people also forget. Mm. Exactly. So he's always been a disabled person, which, as disabled people point out, is very different from someone who, for example, becomes disabled in a motor car accident. And, And so he didn't have the loss of a disability, but nevertheless, he had that trauma. Then he was supported on the one hand, by, by his parents' attitude that you don't have to be treated differently from other kids. But there was also the message that your prosthesis are the same as Carl's shoes, which kind of gave the message that the disability doesn't make you different. Mm. Now, disability doesn't make you different in terms of your humanity, in terms of your entitlements, in terms of your potential. It does make you different in the sense of different vulnerabilities, different challenges. And I think that his vulnerabilities were never supported. And that was strengthened by him saying that his parents made him go and fight the bullies at school, and he was bullied. So bullying is another element. Um, if, you know, if he had to go to the principal's office, his father sent him to the principal's office. He, it seems, you know, his father actually apologized in the, in the newspaper. The one thing that's made this case unique 
is that we have more access to Oscar's life and his psyche than I would have if I was doing a forensic evaluation. There's such rich information. So his father's relationship has been bad from the beginning. It seems like his father bullied him and rejected him, and his father rejected him for his disability. So, you know, all of these things shape a person. Then there's the, the loss of his mother, mother seemingly being an alcoholic, her fear and the gun under her pillow. Her pillow. And then he, you know, becomes a success at school. He, he, he is launched to fame um, at, at a very young age. He's this golden boy. And that also has its costs because he had to spend a lot of time training. He spoke about the isolation and the many, many months of training. Now, that's during a developmental phase when people are dating, exploring relationships, all of that kind of thing. So you could say that all of those years come out of his dating experience, out of his relationship experience, and he's now 28, but maybe he's had the dating experience of a 19-year-old. I have to say that I, when I first met Oscar, I spent a day with him, um, took him off to the Vitz uh, genetic testing um, spot, and, uh, it, you know, this is to my endless shame because on Come Dine With Me, I... <laughs> Name dropped Oscar Pistorius uh, permanently. So, but here is what was interesting. What you're saying resonates with me. At the time, he was an incredibly charming guy, but he struck me as somebody who was quite, like, emotionally youthful. He was 21, mm-hmm. but he was, he was. Maybe a bit inept? No, he was charming. He was very sweet. Innocent. Innocent. Innocent is the word that springs to mind. And that's why I found it so hard to reconcile with all this other stuff. The sort of coming of age stuff that took place on this platform, this national platform, where he clearly fell apart at the seams. Now, Leonard, um, let's just go into defining or analyzing or describing the type of personality that Oscar Pistorius is because, you know, this is how right. it's done in psychology. Right. You're given a, a, a category in terms right. of well, where I, you Well, fall. I'm giving you the history to yeah. show you how that, those categories come about. Okay. So just to put it in a nutshell, because I know it's being long-winded, but just to put it in a nutshell, so you've got someone who on the one hand has got these incredible vulnerabilities and insecurities. On the other hand, is launched to fame very, very quickly, is only ever validated his whole life for performance, for being a winner. And and you can see that winning for him is everything because his identity has become centered around that. Celebrity status plays into that. And now you've got two people. You've got, like in King Arthur's Knights of Shining Armor, you've got Percival the Knight on the one hand in his shining armor, this big, powerful knight, but Percival used to wear the clothes that his mother made him mm. underneath his suit of armor. So inside you've got this insecure little boy. So you've got the vanity and that, that shining image on the one, that charming boyish uh, heroic image, and you've got this insecure child. Is there some sort of conflict between these, exactly. these two throughout? Of course. His... There's a tremendous tension between the two. And, and as that tension grows, the pressure to maintain that image, to maintain that performance and the fear of being caught out and, and literally being sort of being caught, you know, in your mommy's clothes, you know, being a, a, a little mommy. nightmare is what I'm realizing. Exactly. He, he's a person for whom shame 
is probably his deepest issue. And I think this court case has been deeply shaming for him. I think as he's vomiting into the bucket, mm. had to do with shame. He couldn't stomach what was being projected onto him. Mm. And so I think what you see in, in Reva's SMSs was he has a guy who has the celebrity show with, with this beautiful girl and everything, but inside the relationship and inside the bedroom, there's an insecure guy who's with a, a model who's two or three years older than him, a lawyer, much more intelligent than him, much more socially sophisticated, with a much more rich relationship history. And he was riddled with insecurity and fear. And consequently, he controlled her. And, you know, she attempted to control her. Well, he attempted to control her. But it, it, he did because, I mean, the fact that she had to ask him whether she should wear the leopard outfit or what, you know, in the SMSs, you know, she was starting to buy into that. But she was also starting to say two weeks before she died, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But you can see that, that tremendous tension between the two Oscars. And I think that the polarity that you're seeing is that people either see him as this revolting, narcissistic, playboy, spoiled brat, you know, who was a loose cannon, very literally, and this poor, broken little boy who's vulnerable and misunderstood and, and never had the love that he's really needed to grow him. But aren't we all actually ultimately quite complex characters? Exactly. Well, this is the thing is for, for some reason we look at Oscar Pistorius and we distance ourselves so much from him to the point where we think, oh, I could never be like that, like that person. But what you're saying, Leonard, is that we're all complicated. Absolutely. Not only are we all complicated, but if you believe what I'm saying, if it resonates with you, it's because you have all these characteristics, as do I. And we can identify with, with Oscar because we have these characteristics. And if you take a very uni, uh, you know, singular kind of approach where he's either this or that, it means that whatever you're excluding are aspects of yourself that you're out of touch with or that you reject. So, you know, we look at, uh, at Oscar's narcissism. We all have narcissism, right? <laughs> we might not be, our narcissism might we not be. We just don't want to admit it. Yeah. yeah. Our narcissism might not be so pervasive that it affects every aspect of our lives as it does with someone who has a narcissistic personality. But the mere fact that we're sitting here on the radio enjoying ourselves is actually manifestation of our narcissism. Of our narcissism, right. yeah. And narcissism we quite like the sound of our own voices. Right. We do. And, <laughs> and we, like, we, we like to be appreciated and we have self-preservation. When we're sick or needy, we put our own needs first. So narcissism is also self-preservatory. And it's only when narcissism becomes the dominant feature of your whole personality that it's problematic. All these opinions on Twitter, and they've right. been countless opinions on the Oscar Pistorius trial, Everybody is some sort of expert on Twitter. Absolutely. Either you're a psychologist or you're a lawyer or you're a judge. Is that a form of narcissism when uh, people are tweeting about Oscar Pistorius and they want to be heard for what they think? Well, there's a healthy narcissism about it. When someone has got a real expert opinion and they can feel that they're, that they're adding to the discussion, that's a healthy manifestation of narcissism. Where you see the pathological narcissism is people who just attack people whose opinions they don't like, but they have no real logical basis for it. They just can't bear, like the queen in Snow White, the mirror saying, you're not the most beautiful of them all. Yeah. And certainly when you've recruited a celebrity as a prop in your own drama and your identification with that celebrity makes you feel special, 
and other people are undermining the celebrity, it's like saying, you know, you're wearing a lousy brand. You're going to defend the brand because you, you don't want to be shown up as having associated yourself with a lousy brand. And, and that's why I think people will support someone even if the evidence shows that he's not what they're saying. Leonard, isn't it interesting, though, that in a way we all chose to support Oscar Pistorius as our brand before all of this because he was almost the precise symbolism, symbolic creature that Absolutely. represented South Africa. He had risen above his struggles, adversity. His struggles yeah. adversity, and had taken us to like Olympic glory. Absolutely. And so in a way, the story is all our story, and we all did that, and I think that's why we became so defensive to begin with. Absolutely. And so heartbroken and so emotional, because and essentially betrayed. that's what's going on with everyone. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. There's, there's a betrayal as well, because when you invest that kind of trust in someone to represent something for you, and they fail, it feels like a betrayal. But... You know, the, the question you have to ask is, should you actually be investing someone with that kind of trust? Because just because someone's a brilliant sportsman doesn't make them the most evolved personality on the planet, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, Take Yost, for example. Yeah. So the other thing now that you've got to acknowledge. Also with poor Yost, poor Oscar, poor Yost. Right. But, but think in, in, in what people invest in these people, look what they chose to ignore. All the evidence that this was going to happen has existed for a long time. Look at the New York Times article. Um, if you go into the media, you'll see that this was, that in a way, there was an let's call it an accident. There was a disaster waiting to happen. But people chose to ignore all the signs. So, wait a minute. Let me understand what you're saying, Leonard. When, when news broke that this had happened, that Oscar Pistorius had shot Riva Stienkamp, were you, were you sitting there... Thinking, well, I'm not surprised. The signs were all there. Well, well, I didn't know that much about him at that point. Right. So I thought, I, I can't believe that someone in his position would do something this mad. Okay. You know, you know, why would he throw everything up? But I've done a lot of research. Um, he's always been reckless with firearms. He's always had impulse control issues. He's always had rage issues. Um, he's always been a bad loser in a bad sport. Um, you know, he's had a lot of interpersonal problems. Um, he's always got away with stuff. Um, and so why shouldn't this have eventually escalated to this point? So I'm saying that when we invest this almost godlike status to a celebrity, you do them a disservice because you, you forget about and you ignore and you deny all the aspects of them that contradict that status. Now, you wrote an article for Marie Claire magazine. Yes. And which is coming out on Monday. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the basis of your article is basically you outline why you think Oscar is abusive. Is is that correct? Well, I, I, I outlined why I thought signs and from Reva's version, <laughs> yeah, why she was in an abusive relationship. Okay, so I wanna, I want to, I want you to explain that to, to me now. Why? I mean, there was a controlling element. Is somebody who's been controlling automatically abusive? Is is that what I'm understanding from this? Well, you know, you can have subtle abuse, yeah. like subtle dehumanizing practices, which which undermine and diminish someone, make them feel less than. It's not necessarily abusive, but it does wear the other person down. It does kind of destroy your spirit over time. 
And then you can have outright abuse where there's a pervasive politics in the relationship of control. Um, and so when someone's commenting on your mannerisms, on your relationships, your conversations, your dress, mm. um, starting to make rules, starting to keep you under surveillance, checking on who you've been speaking to, what you've been saying. Storming out of parties because yes, you're not behaving according you. to right. what he's determined, exactly. which is something that happened That's to humiliation. Him. It's also isolation. Once a person starts isolating you, and they start managing your world so that your world narrows and it all becomes subject to their management, that is an abusive relationship. And, and what I strongly reject in, in the defenses, obviously trying to make it look good, they're 90% of the, the SMSs were kuchiku. All abusive relationships have strong positive interactions because the positive is as much of the control as the negative. Basically, you, you control someone by spoiling them and making them feel wonderful, and you can control someone by hurting them. Mm. And when you alternate the two, they work in beautiful symmetry Symmetry to keep the person stuck. Because every time you're nice, the victim denies her own experience and the fact that the other interactions are inappropriate. So she starts to shut down her own um, inner guidance that says this is no good because every time he's nice, she'll say, look how much he loves me. And she said in her SMSs, we could be so good together. You know, she, she even says that this sort of drama attacks us. She wasn't saying that there's no such thing as a, an abusive relationship. There is a person being abusive and someone else being abused. The relationship doesn't have a mind of its own. The relationship is the two people in it. But she described it as this drama that attacks us as if there's a third force, excusing him, saying, you are the one who's undermining the relationship. But I have to say that this is consistent. This sort of patterning is consistent with abusive relationships. Exactly. When you look at uh, people describing what happens in abusive relationships, and people say, well, why didn't she leave? Why doesn't she leave? What the hell is going on? Yeah. And what is going on is precisely this thing. Absolutely. And also, in a way, that language that she was using about how it might be another, some third force, that there is. I think the fear of there's this normal, nice guy, and then suddenly there's this crazy person who manifests, right. who doesn't actually have a normal place in the relationship. He's just appeared there. And so it may feel like some Absolutely. kind of third force to her. Absolutely. Plus, the initial attraction, it, like like the first time someone takes a drug, is so powerful that you believe that that's the potential of the relationship and you always want to get back there. Like a drug addict says, I've never enjoyed this drug other than the first time I took it, but I just want to get back to that first experience. Maybe I'll have it again. The other thing is that you fall in love with who you want the person to be, who you want to believe that they are, and that becomes so persuasive that you can't focus on the reality of who they really are. Thirdly, woman's biggest mistake, it's generally woman, if I'm loving enough, if I'm adaptive enough, if I give enough, mm. he'll love me. It. I'll change him. Mm. He's a hurt little boy. I mean, look at his terrible history. He's just insecure. He's not really abusive. He's not really controlling. He's just insecure. He's vulnerable. Which is something that has always puzzled me as women is we seem to think, 
well, you know, if I fix this about myself or if, if I change X or Y or if I do more of this, the situation will become better. We always find a way to turn it around to make it about how we're failing and how we can do better Absolutely. to improve him. Absolutely. I mean, black mambas <laughs> um, only strike out of anxiety. Yeah. Right? Right. So the, oh, the snake is so anxious. You know, this lion, I came into his place <laughs> and he was, he got such a fright that, you know, it was, it was putative self-defense that he mauled me, you know? But well, I the, mean, we were talking about the incident, uh, with the, the basketball player. Oh yes, the in the, the lift, the American football player. Right. Is he a football player or a basketball player? He's yet a, to work it out. Well, he's a football player. Um, and the case. and the story a goes. Case, yes. The story goes that um, his name is. I'll tell you. Gosh, I'll find right his now. name now. Because I was Ray tweeting. Ray someone, Ray Rice. And the story goes that there was footage that was released of him punching his fiance in the head, but he punched her. Unconscious, so she got so knocked hard. out in yes. the in the lift, in the lift, in the lift. So, and then he was seen dragging her body out of the lift. And the thing that concerned him, the only moment when he appeared to show any emotion about this uh, right. <laughs> development, right, was when she got stuck slightly on the exit from the from the lift. But Leonard, she was still the fiance when he punched her. Allegedly, she married him a month later, and right. she's put out a defence. How of his behaviour? How does that, how does that work in a woman's mind where, well, first of all, let me ask you this. Um, if, if, if your partner hits you the first time, is that enough for you to say, that's it, I'm done, I'm leaving? Is it, that's it? Like, that's it. It's Absolutely. over, call quits, I'm out of here. Absolutely. It, it doesn't matter what you say or why you did Absolutely. it. It's, it's not good Absolutely. enough. I'm, the, I'm gone. The first time is his fault. The second time is yours. Right. But, and, and that doesn't mean, I'm, I'm not saying that in all cases you never go back again. But you have to draw a very, very clear line because, because abuse is, is, um, subtle and it's, it's, um, it's insidious. It grows slowly. So it always starts with little interactions and little slips. And as the person gives up their autonomy, the control issues start to escalate. So you never see the abuse at the beginning unless you tuned into subtle cues. Like, you know, if you're sitting at a restaurant ordering, do you have a voice? You know, are you fighting for a voice or is your voice ignored? You know, sometimes a woman might say, I am very controlling. It's not that she's controlling. It's that she has to fight for a voice all the time. Mm. Is that. The other thing is that some people navigate through the world very cerebrally and cognitively. So they can look at the facts and be totally unmoved by the emotional content. I think Judge Masipa's like that. You can see that the, 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 the emotional content makes very little impression on her. You, you well, get, I mean, she has just um, the judgment as it's coming out slowly as she's reading through her various. She has acquitted him of murder. Yes. Of premeditated murder. Pre-med- well, I don't think we have premeditated murder in South Africa. As a, um, no, we do. Do we? Yeah. But she's focusing very purely on law. She's not looking at him at emotional stuff, which is what a judge is supposed to do, right? Up to yeah, it, it is. But you could have taken his his behaviour on the stand and all of that more into account. But I'm just showing it a particular kind of personality. You get other people that are driven by empathy. Mm. When you are when you are a very empathic person and you're driven very strongly by empathy, 
empathy feels so real for you because that's what you use to navigate through your relationships, that your empathy overrides your cognitive uh, ability. Your logic. Your logic. In other words, even the evidence in front of you. I mean, I was listening to a lecture by a guy who's an expert on narcissism who says, I am a psychopathic narcissist. Mm -hmm. And I felt, found myself saying, come on, you're not. You're such a nice guy. Look how helpful you're being in giving us in this information about narcissism. So even the guy saying it directly, because I'm a kind of empathic person, I wanted to feel sorry for him and be nice to him. And he's saying, I'm dangerous. Don't be nice to me. I promise you, I'll hurt you. And so there's, there's that, that element. And then don't take out the element also that the man or, or let's say the abuser, because it's not always men and it can be the genders can be reversed, mm. but the abuser always tells the victim that it's the victim's fault. Um, that you're the one with a personality disorder. You're the needy one. You're the one who acts like this and like this. And, and, and what well, I'm You're I the find, one that made me hit you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're so demanding. You're so provocative. I've never been like this with any other woman. You are the first woman. You are the problem. That's made me behave like this. So think about it. You're the problem. I'm such an asker. I'm such a celebrity. You're lucky to be with me. No one else would put up with this. Um, so those kinds of messages and also that changing the rules, switching from nasty to loving all the time makes the victim lose total confidence. In their own, in her own experience, in her own power and judgment. So then, would that explain then why she married him a month later? Now, this woman with the with the baseball player. Why well, would you well, then marry well, well, him remember, a month later? Remember that the relationship didn't start a month and a day before. Yes. And then she was already well locked in. Yeah. When that uh, punch happened, and also. An analogy which I actually used in court, um, asking a judge to acquit a woman who did murder her husband, premeditated. He was passed out. She tied a plastic bag over his head after cuffing his hands together with cuffs that she'd bought in the morning. Okay, no, that is premeditated. Was, and she was found guilty of premeditated, but she didn't serve a sentence because it was, because there were exceptional, compelling circumstances because of it being a, an abusive relationship. But when the judge was trying to understand, I explained, that on a behavioral level, when you're trying to train an elephant, you first tether the elephant to a tree. Once the elephant's realized it's not going anywhere, you can take that chain and put a hairpin into the ground with it, and the elephant doesn't leave. So the victim's world, behaviorally, she gets conditioned to only live within those four walls. Right. And then there was once an experiment done in the 70s in the California Oceanarium where they decided instead of quarantining mackerel in a separate tank, they'll put them in the main tank where they were finally going to be released, but within a smaller glass tank. They kept them there for three months, and when they took out the glass tank after three months, the mackerel continued to swim within that space as if the glass was still there. And, and people think fish can't remember anything. Right. <laughs> and perceptually, that's what happens to a victim, that their world closes down. They don't see anymore that there are other possibilities because the guy's forbade them to work. He's forbade them to have, have relationships with their friends. He's forbade them to speak to their family. They don't, they don't see a world outside of his control. It's like a cult, like a dictatorship. You know, wh wh why don't people leave North Korea? 
They don't, well, they don't know any better than they surely they're also option. scared of yeah. those border guards with exactly. large guns. Yeah. Exactly. They exactly. don't know any better than their immediate existence. Well, exactly. Calling the North Koreans mackerels, uh, <laughs> Lennon. Well, I, I, very hungry ones. <laughs> I, I, you know, and the other thing is that, you, <laughs> oh, dear, you, you, you know, there's also the concept of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. So basically, once you've lived with a monster like this, um, your fear that if you were to divorce him or get out of the relationship and he comes after you, it's going to be much worse. Well, or maybe the children will get there's harmed. There's so many women who do get murdered under those circumstances. Exactly. True. You, you can hear also why I never, ever blame the victim. I don't, uh, and I never seek explanations that, expl- that talk to the psychology of the victim. For me, it's the politics and the control of the abuser that needs to be looked at. 0861-555-189 if you'd like to join in on the conversation or you can message us straight to uh, WeChat on the Cliff Central official account. We're talking to Leonard Carr, clinical psychologist. Um, L- Leonard, do, do people know when they're in a, an abusive relationship initially? Is it a process of them having to come to the terms with, oh my goodness, I'm in an abusive relationship, and then they've got to work through the denial, and then eventually they've got to admit it and think, well, I've got to save myself from this. In yes. the beginning, do they, do, do, do people sometimes not even know that they're in an abusive relationship, or is that not the case? Well, let me answer you by giving you my golden rule of avoiding abuse. The golden rule is the first time you find yourself making an excuse for someone's behavior a big red light should be going off. So what happens is that people deny the signs of abuse right at the beginning. People look at their subjective feelings in a relationship. I'm so in love with this person. Mm. I always say, I don't care whether you're in love with someone or not. What I want to know is how does this person make you feel? The fact that you feel in love with them is one thing. But how do they make you feel, number one, in general? Number two, how do they make you feel about yourself? You can be in love with someone who makes you feel lousy about yourself because they're undermining you or they're humiliating you subtly or criticizing you or whatever. So people don't pay attention to those early signs. They only start noticing the early signs when it's already escalated and their politics is well established. Then maybe friends are starting to point it out. Then there's the humiliation of having to admit to your friends and family that actually you were right all the time and I didn't listen to you. So the victim starts talking to, stops talking to, to friends and family, cuts herself off from her support systems, and then wants to postpone a little bit further because she believes that she'll somehow make it right and somehow a miracle will happen and all of that. And, and so by the time she, it's like an addiction. By the time she realizes how bad it is, she's already at rock bottom. And it's usually that rock bottom that's what is is what's required to get someone out of an abusive relationship. Sadly. Leonard, this is my question though. Our society, if women just listen to the messages that come our way, most of them are not empowering positive messages. I mean, I listen to hip hop and <laughs> sometimes I just it's have to true. actually it's turn true. it off. It's I have true. to turn it off because I think my Goodness, if I actually internalize this message yeah. about me yeah. as a woman, then I am just a so-and-so ho 
just you're just worthless, and you're only really good for one purpose, which exactly. is to satisfy a man. And beyond that, you're really of no use. No use. Yeah. So this is the message that really is being perpetrated upon women every day. Mm. How is it that women are going to differentiate? Because you you you're getting that message quite often from exactly. your loved one, who well, is a male, who is presumably also believes that deep down in his heart. I mean, some part of this has like this like jock absolutely. status, jock quality. I mean, shoot of guns and coffee shops. Yeah. Exactly. And especially when you live in South Africa, which is a very patriarchal society. Mm. So you're right. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about it. And that's why I'm maybe long-winded and go into so much detail because people need to understand. We have to start talking about this and keeping this awareness going. And not allow people, like happened in the Pistorius case, where the defense plays right into that narrative of, no, this was nothing. This, you know, these weren't so bad. It was really a nice relationship. They're just young people. Everyone has fights. You know, like everyone has fights. But the biggest thing is, actually, you know where I think the intervention needs to be? The way we raise boys. The, ray, the, way, the we way we raise, raise boys. boys. Just boys or our girls as boys, well? Boys. I'll tell you something that's very... They're spoken from a father of five boys. Yeah. Well, and then, you, then, then I think you know a lot more about what you're talking about. <laughs> but the reason why I'm asking you this is because I cannot tell you how many times I've heard older women telling their daughters, you know what, my dear, he's your husband. You need to, you know, respect his wishes. You need to be strong. And you need to somehow find the way to get through this difficult time that you're going through. So this is why I'm also asking you, do we also not need to change the, the messages that these girls Absolutely. are getting from older women? Absolutely. But and maybe just one final point <laughs> is the messages that we give ourselves. Because, yes, okay, so he's like fulfilling the narrative and saying, oh, you must change this, you must change that. But women are also saying that to themselves all the time, yeah, going, yeah. Mm, I am actually, I might be too loud. Yeah, I, I'm, I might maybe be I'm internalizing too, the yeah. Maybe I'm too fat. Maybe I'm too needy. Maybe, maybe I'm, I'm too, too irritating. And maybe I'm too ugly. Maybe I need to change X, Y, and Z to be really beautiful, to be really loved. Yeah. And so that is a that is a narrative that women are also Absolutely. telling themselves Absolutely. all the time. It's not just that society is telling us. Absolutely. We're okay, so let's, let's start with what you mean by you, we need to change the way we raise our boys. Boys need to be raised First of all, with empathy, they need to be raised to be connected to their own feelings, not to be shamed for feeling vulnerable or sad or threatened or whatever it is. They need to be supported in dealing with their emotional world, number one. Number two, they need to be taught respectful boundaries, respect for the mother. Um, you know, for example, if, 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 if a boy says, you know, mommy, you know, please will you bring me the tomato sauce? My reaction is, your mother's not your waitress. Mm. You get up and get it yourself, you know? <laughs> if you, if you, you know, you have people for dinner, you can have people for the very first time for dinner. You'll see the con at the end of the meal, the conversation continues. The men talk and the women, as if there was a remote control, all seem to get up at the same time and start taking off the table. These are people that have met for the first time. When was it ever negotiated that the woman would get up and leave the interesting conversation and the men would carry on? Yeah. Surely that is just uh, 
hundreds of years of practice. Hundred exactly. Surely, when they were sitting that. around the Paleolithic fire, <laughs> those ladies were getting up and cleaning and, and up. They, they the were bones. hunting for tomorrow's meal. Yeah, but but the fact of the matter is, we're living in a different time, because because I I do believe that in those past generations there wasn't this kind of abuse. It, it, it's fine if you have that kind of patriarchal society if everyone's safe and nurtured in it. But it's we're living in very, very abusive times. So there's this the, the, the aspect of empathy, the, the aspect of, of sharing roles, of being prepared to negotiate, um, of, of not just theoretically seeing women as equal, but practically teaching boys to embody that knowledge where you, where you take all these little taken-for-granted practices in society that give us a blind spot to the inequalities, and you challenge those. Leonard, you would be the perfect person to ask this to because I've always wondered. Sometimes you'll see a guy who has a tremendous amount of his respect for his mother, and then with the woman that he is involved with in a relationship, he treats her as, you know, like a piece of property for him to have right. his way with. And then he, he gets a daughter, and he will literally lay down his life for her. Right. Now, all, all three of them are women. Where is the disconnect between his mother, the woman that he with, he's with, who he treats, who he mistreats, and then his daughter, who he also just worships? Where's the disconnect? There's there? no disconnect. What is the, what, it's, how it's, does it's that happen? We, it's what I would describe as Oedipus, Schmidipus, as long <laughs> as he loves his mother. Okay. Which means what? Which means that if his mother worshipped him as her little golden boy, mm -hmm. and she actually enslaved herself to taking care of his needs, and serving him hand and foot. Um, he's come to see women as being there to serve him. Okay. And he has to play the role. The, the, the agreement, the implicit contract in the relation with the mother is if you my golden boy, I'll serve you hand and foot. Yeah. So, so there's still the objectification on both sides. And then you get a woman who's not your mother. So why should you treat her like your mother? Because you've got your mother. To adore and worship. Now she must. But now serve she's also an object, just like your mother, and yeah. she must serve you hand and foot. And if she's not treating you like the, if she doesn't know how special you are and how lucky she is to have you, mm. she should be put into line. And then your daughter, who you want to protect with your life? Well, your daughter is an extension of you. So your daughter's now this little product that you, this she's golden boy, she has sprung from your loins, <laughs> yeah. and you protect her. But. Men also, in a sense, I'm going to use a harsh, strong word. I've seen men also pimping their daughters. You know, when, when men like dress their daughters in sexy clothes and make them and, 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 and all of that, there, there is some exploitation yeah. and boundary crossing there as well. When you can't see your daughter as a person who's got to grow up and be strong and independent and all of that. So it's not, so even though what it looks good. What happens if your mother has rejected you? And in the case of Oscar, I mean, I think we had the feeling That's where right. he was almost constantly feeling that he had to protect her. She, she had almost abdicated responsibility. Right. So, and, and I mean, there's no question that she loved him, but what happens when she doesn't or when she just dies? That's what happens to your psyche then? Well, there's a sense of abandonment, you know, the sense of the person that you relied on to be your protection and everything abandoning you. Also, when a mother, let's say, has an addiction or, or is battered by a divorce and an abusive relationship and has insecurities and the son's got to support her, 
he, in a sense, puts aside his emotional needs and becomes kind of frozen and develops a pseudo-maturity to take care of her. But there's a part of him that stays a vulnerable little boy who's still resentful and missing um, his need for nurturing mm. and, and can't deny his dependence, uh, can't admit his dependency needs because they make him vulnerable. And, and that's where you see the controlling and the jealousy because the dependency needs are being expressed through power rather than through vulnerability. But you can see that that's the abandonment of the mother. But I just want to emphasize that both um, abusing a child and hero-worshipping a child and putting them onto a pedestal are both abusive. They're both violations of the child's boundaries, and they're both exploitation of the child for the adult's needs. So as soon as an adult exploits a child for their needs, whether it's by molesting them or making them into a demigod and worshipping them, both ways you're saying to the child who you are is not important and not good enough. You have to be what I need you to be. And that's how narcissism develops. Because then the child develops a shell, a pretense of a personality to stand in for the personality that got lost in early childhood. You see, that is something that really fascinates me and then also frightens me a little bit because unless you've got obvious signs like you're being punched in the face by your partner mm. or you're being molested, I get the feeling that a lot of people are possibly in abusive relationships and are not just, they're not even aware of it Absolutely. just yet. And that is a scary thought. Absolutely. That's why physical abuse in a, in a perverse kind of way is so much better than emotional because at least you have tangible evidence. Yeah. Whereas when someone is You've eating away at your eye. spirit, yeah. yeah, when someone's is eroding your spirit, there's, you've got no evidence. And people, like what you said about that mother's message, people can always say, just be stronger. You have to hold it together. Or mm. stop being so hypersensitive. Or, darling, I did it. Your grandmother did it. Yeah. What makes you so special? Or this is what men, men do. You must Absolutely. just find a way to get through it. This right. is what men do. Right. <sighs> I promise I you, I've heard what, that before. This is what men do. Sure. Well, it is what men do, peculiarly. <laughs> it is something that they've been enabled to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? We've Absolutely. given them permission. I was uh, chatting in the nail bar, as one does. We <laughs> resolve all stories in the nail bar. <laughs> of course. This very morning. And we were talking about there's a very um, famous uh, French woman director who did a video. And what she did was she basically created a man's world if it was completely overrun by women. So if, if women if were, women in, were charge, in charge. And so this, yeah, this man goes out into this world. He's, his wife is left for work in the morning. He's like sort of riding with these shorts to work. He gets like harassed in the street by women who catcall him and traumatize him as he goes on his way and you can see that like now he's feeling quite emotionally vulnerable then um when he's leaving work where he's been shouted around by a lot of uh, powerful women women. (laughs) he leaves he leaves work and on the way home he gets cornered by uh several rowdy women who (laughs) then basically harass him and feed him up in the street and he goes to the hospital and then his wife comes and picks him up after this like sort of terrible experience mm. and 
She's kind of insensitive. She's like, well, why did you wear those shorts to work today? Mm, why did you ask for it? Yes. Yeah. And there was nothing more powerful because it seems so ludicrous when you see it like that. Because really his shorts were completely unattractive. <laughs> and there was nothing to make anyone go for him. Yeah. But it was such a powerful image. I yeah. think we must post it. It's a very powerful video. So there. that people can watch it. Now, if 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 men watch these things, does it? really have much of an impact on them because I think that that's what these videos are intended for is to make men think differently. I think it does. And a lot of these problems are because we become habituated by the cues around us that we take for granted and don't mm. notice. And, and when those are challenged, even in a subtle way, like through this video, slowly it, it, it helps a man to reach a new awareness and it erodes those taken for granted beliefs about how society should be. I should also say that about that video that it it also explains in in a way why we don't take it seriously when men get abused mm. because we almost can't visualize or conceptualize a man being in the same position. But believe me, although it might be a minority, maybe it um, it does happen. Yeah. Well, I'm sure emotional abuse, without a doubt. If we can work out how to well, physical abuse as well. Yes, physical. Well, abuse. there was that Solange incident. <laughs> yes, I mean, oh, well, people went online and said, and in fact, also in re- relation to this fellow whose name I keep on insisting on forgetting, the baseball the slash ba- the, whatever player yes, he was. the football player. Ray. That one, yeah. Ray. What kind of, he was playing some American sport anyway, <laughs> Ray. And the men's rights groups, I mean, I found that very shocking. On Twitter, mm. you have been writing things and going, well, what do you expect? She hit him in the lift. She hit him. Right. Yes, and there was somebody. There was somebody who even made the statement of, "Well, you know, she provoked him." We, ladies, do not provoke your men. Yeah, I but, mean, but on the other side, I, I have seen women who bite, yeah, pinch, punch, and and will deny that there's anything wrong with that purely because they're the woman. Um, and and the guy almost doesn't have a voice because what's he going to say? No, well, you really did hurt me because he's. You know, in our society where men are shamed mm. for expressing vulnerability or, 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 or feeling threatened, he'd look like a wimp. Mm-hmm. So, so men, even if they're in physical abusive relationships, will very seldom admit it. I, I have never physically attacked anyone, but I, just out of interest, if I got into an altercation with a man that I was involved with and I did start punching him and physically attacking him and then he hit back, who's... Am I just, am I as equally as wrong as he is? Or did, was he in the wrong for hitting me back? Well, first of all, when it comes to the law of (laughs) self-defense, the threat has to be immediate. Yeah. And the force you use has to be in proportion to the force used against you. Which is the answer to Mr. American sports. That's right. Well, I mean, he's a big, tough guy. Right. And, And that's why in the case where the woman I was talking about Killed her husband while he was passed out. Yeah. That's why I argued it was self-defense. Yeah. Because she didn't have a choice but to get him while he was down because she, otherwise <laughs> oh, he would have killed her. The judge accepted that. Would he have killed her, Lennon? Eventually. And remember that in an abusive relationship, it's life-threatening because even if he doesn't intend to kill, everyone's learned a new word, a term called dolus eventualis, which to me sounds like eventually he'll end up on the dole. But... um <laughs> We might. But yet. basically, you can punch someone. They can fall over and hit their head against a kitchen counter. 
um, or, or something like that and die even though you didn't intend it. Yes. So a physically abusive relationship is always life-threatening. Abuse always does escalate. Be sure of that. It never stays at the same level. Um, and, 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 and therefore, in, in, in the kind of situation where you, um, where you described, the man's responsibility or the other person's responsibility is to contain the situation, not to retaliate. Mm. And if he knows that he's much stronger than you, he could either get out of the situation or maybe restrain you yeah. by hugging you so tight that you can't You can't punch. hit him, yes. And, and, and then be loving and calm you down. There's no excuse for someone who's stronger and for whom the other person poses no real threat to just pull a huge punch and knock them out. Leonard, we've only got a few more minutes left. Um, I want to get back to the Oscar Pistoria scenario, and I want to talk about us and the way that we have consumed this trial and our obsessions with it. And I just want a bit of a psychological analysis on (laughs) ourselves. Yeah, how do we cure ourselves? We've been very quick to throw judgments. And, I mean, it was literally on the day that the news broke that Oscar Pistorius had shot Riva Sienkamp. We were all polarized. There was the he's guilty group versus the he's not guilty group. And we have been vocal about it since. And the shame-faced name-droppers group. Our obsession with this trial, is that, that can't be a good thing. I think it's been a very good thing. Why? I think it's taught people a lot about law, okay. about psychology. It's been a real reality show, not a staged reality show. Um, and I think we've seen different aspects of the human condition all being reflected in this. I think if people want to benefit from it and grow out of the experience, the challenge is to wear different hats. So number one, to look at how whatever your take has been Mm. is a reflection of who you are as a person. Because what people say mirrors who they are, not what they're observing. And and the evidence of that is different observers can have such opposite opinions. So look at yourself and say, what have I participated in this and what does it say about me? What are my blind spots, my prejudices, my, you know, fantasies of how I'd like life to be? And then expand your empathy and compassion by looking at it from different points of view. Look at it from Oscar's point of view. Whatever his motives and intentions are, look at his life now, the amount of pain he must be in. Mm. Look at his family, the humiliation they're going through. What I've certainly held up a candle for is Reva Steenkamp. Whatever happens to Oscar, he still has potential in life. He can become a motivational speaker, sell books, and still make a fortune. Yeah. Reva Steenkamp's potential's over. Yeah, I think that is a very big possibility. She's gone. Reva Steenkamp has no more potential. Her parents' life is devastated. A lot, their, their grandchildren, their future, um, came to an end that day. An abrupt end. So, so look at it from different points, people's point of view, and, and use that as an, as an opportunity to expand your own humanity. Would you still feel that way if it had been Oscar Pistorius was driving, he didn't see her, hit her with a car, and she died? I mean, that is a genuine accident. Absolutely. If it had been a case like that, would you still feel the same way? At the end of the day, we, we all have to say there, but for the grace of God, go on. None of us know that if we were that person with that history and those circumstances, that we would act any differently. Yeah. And that's why no one can really afford judgment. You can only afford judgment if you distance yourself and believe that you're somehow a special human being 
that wouldn't react to those kinds of pressures. Mm. And that's just arrogance, narcissism. And have most of us been guilty of that arrogance on Twitter? I think so. I think so too. I think I might have been guilty of it myself, now that I think about it. We'll now repent on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Carr, clinical psychologist, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. We've thank run out of time, as for Sia. dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week uh, on Cliff Central with Between Two Femmes.